At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, throat, and lateral skull base surgeon, and I practice in New York City and in Wayne, New Jersey with ENT and Allergy Associates. I was waiting for that. So you knew you were up to something. I could tell with that little glint in your eye that something was going on. I'm Marina Curry, and I'm the general surgeon and a minimally invasive surgeon in New York City. And we have a wonderful show lined up for you guys today. Um, surgeon is all, she, she's totally watching the Oscars. I won't be because I don't know what I'll be doing. I'll find something to do. But exciting show for you guys today because we have. The, some of the doctors, two of the doctors from Lenox Hill. It's a great Netflix series that uh, is following uh, the physicians around and, and kind of chronicling the stories that uh, they see with their patients, et cetera. And that's Dr. David Langer and Dr. John Bookbar. They're both neurosurgeons on this great show, um, which, so do you, have, have you watched it, my friends and all? I, I keep telling them, you know, this is what happens at the Hill. Yeah, it's a it's really a great show. And we will talk to them about their experience of not just being neurosurgeons and what they do in their day jobs, but what it was like uh, to be followed around by camera crews and um, how that did for them. Marina may not be watching the Oscars tonight, but man, oh man, is she sparkly today. So maybe you're dressed to get an award. This is, this is really my, um, my cry for help. Like, you <laughs> You need an organizer because basically this was reach in the closet, grab something and put it on. And then you were like, oh, it's sparkly. I'm like, oh, yeah. Anyway, oh. as you guys know, we like to talk about um, some of the news of the week. And unfortunately, we still have to keep talking about COVID. And this time, COVID is really bad uh, in certain parts of the country uh, and the world, actually. I just read something in the New York Times today about how in Michigan, um, the, the hospitals are full and they're full of patients that are showing up that are in their late 20s, 30s, and, and 40s to 50s, which is not what we saw initially uh, when COVID really started. But Sujana, we have a great slide about what's happening around the world. Yes, we do. And I'll remind our uh, viewers, we're live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and scroll.in, and Shree's LinkedIn page, and we will be carried on WBAI 
uh, org Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. So please uh, share and like and let your friends know if they want to hear about COVID and neurosurgery and meet our celebrity guests. But around the world, um, COVID is raging. And uh, the, w, the World Health Organization um, has this data for us. Uh, there have been a total of 145,000, I'm sorry, 145 million cases, 3 million deaths um, around the world of COVID-19. Almost 900 million vaccines have been administered as of this week. And you can see that the darker shaded numbers on this map are doing the worst. And they include Canada, the United States, Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, Chile, much of Western Europe, Russia, South Africa, Turkey, Iran, India, and parts of Southeast Asia. And as Marina said, the situation in the United States is, is really quite bad in a significant percentage of our states. Um, we're seeing that this map from the CDC shows us that we have over 200 new cases per day in Colorado, Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maine, and Puerto Rico with many other states close behind. And as Marina said, we are seeing this wave of younger people getting serious COVID disease right now. But there is, is good news about vaccinations, right, Marina? Yeah, but I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about this um, uh, B117 variant, because I read today that that, I mean, actually we've kind of been seeing a lot of it in this country, but it's now apparently the predominant um, variant. And unfortunately, originally people were like, oh, you know, it's not, it's not as severe disease that you get with this variant, but now they're saying that it is actually more severe now. So perhaps the variants mutated again, which is what they do. And if we look at India, we were so excited in the beginning to see how India didn't have quite the uptick. We all expected it to be like um, a tremendous disaster there. And it, it hadn't been, of course, any death that from this infection is a disaster, but it hadn't been so bad. But now India, we have a slide on that is on a, on a, on a rampage really. And they are running out of oxygen which is terrible because now people can't, it's not even about having an ICU or getting on a ventilator. It's actually just about having oxygen so that they can help salvage people. And um, yeah, the, the data from there is really kind of frightening. They have over 300,000 new cases per day, okay. over 2000 official deaths per day, but in fact, mm. crematorium. So most, um, Hindus in India get cremated. So the crematoriums are reporting COVID cremations four to 24 times the official numbers of COVID deaths. So there's some undercounting happening and the situation is pretty dire. And what Marina said about oxygen and healthcare is, is real. Uh, we have a graphic about that too, Marina. Right. But we want to, you know, we, there's actually a plea for help here because you can donate um, to the American Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. There's a, the website is uh, aapiusa.org. And what you can do is give uh, money to help get oxygen to India because um, there was a recent story about a, a guy who was driving his father around in his car 
uh, with a tank of oxygen that they had and his oxygen was running out, just trying to get to a hospital that wasn't full. And he had already gone across state lines trying to find a hospital. So it is a dire situation. If, if you guys are watching and you uh, want to donate, um, you can donate this. All that money is going directly for getting um, relief and oxygen to to India because they're just the tanks are empty. It's such a disaster. You don't think that that could happen, right? But obviously it can. Yeah. And, you know, if we use mitigation efforts and if we, which is masking and distancing and um, giving the vaccines, look at Israel. The success story in Israel is remarkable. From a high of about 8,000 cases a day, they actually found, had their very first day of no deaths from COVID in, in the past year. So the first day in the past year where there were no deaths and their numbers are less than 100 per day. So it can be done. Israel is a smaller place, but you know you can extrapolate that to continuing to wear a mask. You're absolutely right, Marina, the variants are scary. Um, to getting vaccinated, to maintaining your distance, to not going to indoor parties uh, just for a little while longer, guys, and we can get to this. So the other thing, uh, we do want to talk about the vaccines. Good news that, you know, I think the Johnson ja Johnson is being going to be uh, used again, which is wonderful. And also in vaccine news, um, they are showing that it is safe in third trimester of pregnancy for women to get the vaccine. And it also seems to confer uh, some protection to the newborn, which is excellent news. So, it, you know, it's exciting that we finally are getting data on groups that we didn't have that information on before because the studies were done on normal healthy volunteers and not that being pregnant is unhealthy. It's awesome. But it, it was not a group that was studied. So now we have that data. And I think, you know, when you're if you're listening to this and if you have friends uh, that are hesitant, they really should get vaccinated. That other number that we put up before was, you know, it's almost 900 million vaccines around the world. I think we're we're at over 200 million in the U.S., though, unfortunately. So the vaccines, it sounds like so many people have the vaccine, but really it it, it is not distributed equitably. Yeah, the, definitely the wealthier countries have the vaccines and we could have a whole political show on it, but we're a medical show. So um, what can you do when you're vaccinated? Well, I'll tell you, Marina. My family and I went to City Field and we got to see Jacob deGrom pitch a, an entire game, two piddly little hits off of him. It was amazing. The stadium is at significantly less than capacity, but the sounds of MVP filled the stadium and it was the first baseball game we've gone to in almost two years and it was really fun. Oh, so what can you do? You can, you can be with... Um, other people who are not vaccinated in small groups indoors, I mean, who are vaccinated in small groups indoors, you can um, travel domestically and internationally more comfortably. What the CDC says you can't do is be with unvaccinated people who are at high risk of disease and also be in medium or large size gatherings, particularly indoors. And then, just before we get to our guests, who are amazing, I want to give a shout out to my friend and my co-host who embodies the word 
perseverance and intellect and talent. Marina, congratulations. You've been elected secretary treasurer of the American Society for Bariatric Medicine and Surgery, which means you're going to be their president in a couple of years. So bravo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. But we are going to get to our guests now because so excited to have them. We're going to talk about the brain. And you know, when those, when you always make those comments, like it's not brain surgery. Well, it's not rocket science, right? It is brain surgery today. So we're so excited to have us join, uh, joining uh, Dr. David Langer, who is the chair, and Dr. John Bookbar, who's the vice chair, respectively, of the neurosurgery department at Lenox Hill here in uh, NYC. And they were also two of the doctors that were featured in the Netflix documentary Lenox Hill. So welcome. Hey, here we are. Thank you. Welcome, John. Welcome, David. We're so happy to have you. Um, we do have a sponsor, so I'm going to just mention our sponsor very briefly, uh, Ear, Nose, and Throat and Allergy Associates. So ENT and Allergy Associates has 40-plus convenient locations throughout New York and New Jersey, and you can get a same-day appointment. So if you need an ENT and allergy doctor, please give them a call or go online. Um, so John and David, uh, we are so excited to talk to you today. Um, we have a lot to cover. Uh, so let's start by explaining to our audience what the central and peripheral nervous systems are. And maybe I'm going to ask you, David, as chair at Lenox Hill, to explain this to us. Well, basically, the, the uh, nervous system has like a, a central core and then the periphery. And so the brain and spinal cord are thought of as the central nervous system and the peripheral nerves and the both sensory, which are the nerves that govern how you feel. And then the, and the motor nerves, which govern movement are essentially the extensions of that central core. Obviously the peripheral nervous system is probably, it's all mysterious, but we're starting to learn a lot more about the, the peripheral nervous system. That's interesting. In fact, uh, some of the biggest advances, I think, in the next uh, decade will likely be understanding the way the peripheral nervous system uh, uh, affects us, whether it's depression, rheumatologic disease, autoimmune disease. Um, in fact, Kevin Tracy, who's a Northwell neurosurgeon, no longer operates, but is really one of the primary investigators uh, of, the, of how the peripheral nervous system really affects us. We're more, we more understand the brain in, in, in like lo location-wise, you know, motor speech, memory, but the peripheral nervous system is uh, even more mysterious. And I know John has a great relationship with, with Kevin. I don't know if John wants to comment on some of that peripheral, uh, peripheral work that Kevin's doing. Well, sure. <clears throat> and good morning and thank you. I'm sorry, I look like an airline pilot, but we had some uh, issues with my power this morning. A tree took down local power. So, uh, good morning, everyone, and, and <clears throat> thank you, David. Um, actually, the vagus nerve, which is a big nerve that leaves uh, the brain and the brainstem, we're, we're learning a lot about, and um, actually its role in, as David said, rheumatologic diseases. So you may have heard of everything from rheumatoid arthritis to multiple sclerosis to sepsis. We're finding that actually the, the central nervous system actually turns into the peripheral nervous system as we go to our extremities, but what's most interesting Kevin Tracy has shown this, that the peripheral nerves actually synapse directly on lymphocytes. And that is a really important way for our nervous system 
to communicate with our immune system. And we were, you guys were talking about vaccinations. Obviously, that's a vaccination is an attempt to mobilize your lymphocytes to achieve immunity. You can imagine that if you can put an electrode or some sort of device in the neck that stimulates the vagus nerve and then directly control the immune system, this can be a very exciting uh, bioelectronic advance for humanity. Yeah, that, you know, you just mentioned, we did a, a study years ago at Lenox Hill, Mitch Roslin and I, on vagus nerve stimulation to try and uh, affect obesity, actually. But at that same time, there were neck implants for depression that showed really great results. Um, and that was also by stimulating the vagus. So it is kind of cool. But we really want to talk about the brain with you guys, because, you know, brain surgery is, um, like I said, a lot of jokes, but for real, it's a big deal. And we have a slide on what some of the common reasons people would have brain surgery. And if you guys can talk about that a little bit. Then that slide will pop up shortly, like magic. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, uh, John, what about this? So these are some of the common things that, for put in layman's terms of what, um, what we're seeing here. Well, <clears throat> you know, I think for the audience to recognize is, Hopefully, over the course of your life, it's very unlikely that you'll need brain surgery. Um, but if you see something, say something, meaning that if you have a loved one who um, is having some subtle changes in their uh, mental status, their, um, their, for example, they're sitting at the dinner table and they start drooping on one side of the face or they're um, having trouble speaking, obviously, we want to hear from you more quickly because we like to say in neurosurgery, time is brain. And actually, stroke, for example, which is a leading killer in the United States, is a neurosurgical uh, disorder now. It used to, um, a decade ago, be a neurological disorder, meaning that it was not treated by neurosurgeons. But now people like David, who can ban microcatheters and what we call endovascular techniques, they can actually uh, give medications through these microcatheters and retrieve blood clots, in, and that will save brain if it's done in a prudent manner, hopefully less than three hours from the time of, of, of stroke onset. So obviously um, everybody gets headaches, everybody gets nausea and vomiting sometimes. You don't have a brain tumor if you just have a headache. But I like to say, if you have a new and different headache that is inconsistent, it's not responsive to Tylenol, it's worse in the morning, start keeping a headache diary, um, and then obviously seek medical attention. Those are some simple things uh, that we'd asked, uh, ask you to do. Yeah, I think when um, uh, stroke was reclassified re as like a brain attack, like a heart attack to the general public, that made people much more aware. I remember my husband was actually at a lunch meeting with a business partner of his and the partner had a stroke at the lunch meeting and, and he recognized, you know, my, my husband is not a physician, recognized um, and, you know, called 911 and the, the partner got you know, immediate help. But I think that sort of, you know, brain attack, heart attack mentality of let's get you in and treated as quickly as possible is really important. Um, let's go back though to earlier things. So, um, you know, um, hydrocephalus or water on the brain is the most common reason uh, that children undergo brain surgery. Um, so, uh, David, maybe you can talk to us about what that is and what you guys do for it. Well, John is our uh, departmental shunt expert, um, so. Uh, so let him do. So you don't know not, nothing. I, I think you should. I think you should really describe how it should be done, and then we can let John say what he does. Uh, 
actually, so as I've gotten older, and I'm definitely in my third trimester now, um, you know, I think that you, you start to appreciate the value of straightforward cases done well. And the beauty of treating hydrocephalus is probably the most, you know, dramatic thing you can do for someone. We do a lot of very dangerous surgery and people essentially have no symptoms to prevent a problem. And more often than not, you're to risk benefit. You're going to go through this, this risk of surgery to prevent something from bleeding or growing or causing a neurological deficit. And most people come in intact. Well, hydrocephalus is kind of the opposite. If you leave people alone, they die or they get very sick. And putting a shunt in is very safe and easy most of the time. And so it's probably is the biggest benefit of any risk we do of all the procedures we do in neurosurgery. And, you know, there, there have been um, minimally invasive uh, ways of putting these things in. There are the, the, the actual um, valves that are responsible for measuring the pressure and draining at a certain rate. The, the engineering has improved dramatically. I just saw a startup company that's going to have a little external, uh, uh, like a sticker that's got a sensor in it that will measure the amount of flow going through a catheter. So I think that, you know, the shunts grew out of this impossible problem of the water building up in your brain. Either it was overproduced or underabsorbed, one or the other. And uh, particularly in children, it can be devastating because the skull is soft, so the head can grow to enormous sizes as the pressure and the actual overall new um, balance between outside and inside. So these children used to have heads, you know, can be double the size of normal heads before shunts. And actually, the first shunt was designed by an engineer whose, whose child had hydrocephalus. And there's a remarkable, it's really been a remarkably beneficial uh, device in operation. Yes, the children of the majority of hydrocephalus can what we'd call congenital hydrocephalus, meaning you're born with it for with some reason. But there's the, the majority of shunts are put in an adult still, just because the number of adults that get, it's far more adults alive than, you know, children under the age of, of, you know, say 10 that develop these problems. So we do a lot of shunts for normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is actually disease the elderly, patients with big tumors and things that can cause di- disruptions in the, in the spinal fluid pathways. So it's still one of our most common operations, even at Lenox Hill, which is purely an adult practice. So, you know, I read that about 380,000 new cases of hydrocephalus occur per year, and it is uh, childhood hydrocephalus is more common in the developing world uh, for whatever reason. Those children grow up to adulthood, right, John? So you might put in a shunt when they're little, or or a pediatric neurosurgeon might do that. How is the, how do you access currently the, the valve, how, do, how is that person taken care of as they get into their, you know, young adulthood, later adulthood? Yeah, they're growing and the shunt's got like a certain length to it, right? Like, so what do you guys do? Right. So that's, those are great questions. And, you know, David and I both trained at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, where David mentioned a great story. It was a guy named Eugene uh, uh, Spetz, who um, his son in the late 50s or 60s um, um developed hydrocephalus and he worked at a tire company just uh, across the Schuylkill River and he devised the first um, uh, valve which was I think called the Spitzhalter valve and then as David said the technology has just skyrocketed because it's such a global uh, problem but if you put a child's uh, pediatric shunt in that child's going to grow a prepubescent you know growth plate still open child will grow with that shunt and ultimately it will fail because it will break and we see the failure rate of pediatric shunting is very high because of issues like this 
Now, David does a lot of shunting for subarachnoid hemorrhage and aneurysms that Roger, I do a lot of shunting uh, for brain tumors. So there are actually different reasons that adults get uh, hydrocephalus. For the pediatric kids that have congenital hydrocephalus, they, I'll tell you one example of one child we treated at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, he had 75 shunt revisions um, and oh. he was about 16. So um, obviously they're implantable devices, they're prone to failure, they're more likely to fail in the pediatric population. Um, but again, like David said, and what uh, Eugene Spitz did, is they alter the course of a very deadly disease uh, with a very low risk uh, procedure. Yeah, and, and, and that's, you know, it's always hard when uh, I did a stint at Boston Children's, you know, as part of our, my training, and uh, it, it, it was just hard. These kids are so inured, right, to coming in. They, they have no fear after a while, but they're also very hardened, I feel. I'm just sad when you see kids having multiple surgeries. Um, but let's shift gears again a little bit. Um, John, you just mentioned that David puts these shunts in for uh uh, bleeds that occur. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the different types of bleeds, David, if, if you can, that occur in the, uh, in and around the brain. Well, I mean, there are, uh, like your slide shows, you can have bleeds that are on the surface of the brain and push in, whether they're what's called epidural or subdural. And epidural is outside the dura, subdural is inside the dura. David, Epi just tell us what the dura is, if you don't mind. The dura is a kind of leathery covering of the brain that, um, harbors the major draining sinuses of the brain and, the, and there are little vessels, veins that traverse this space, the subdural space between the brain and the dura because the dura essentially houses these venous drainage pathways. Uh, blood can go on the outside of the dura called an epidural bleed and then subdural bleed, which is blood underneath. They're usually, you can trauma cause the vast majority of, of epidural or subdural hemorrhage um, Liam Neeson's, what's Natasha Richardson died of an epidural hemorrhage when she was skiing. Most epidurals are caused by a skull fracture that lacerates an artery and you get a very high pressure blood clot outside the brain pushing in. This is a neurological emergency as opposed to subdurals are not arterial. They tend to be venous because these venous pathways traverse that space. So when you have a trauma and you tear a vein, you get a venous clot. They tend to be slower growing, not as high pressure. And more often than not, people... Uh, uh, survive them after surgery as opposed to an epidural hematoma, which are much more dramatically dangerous. And then the other bleeds we have are inside the brain itself. So you have the epidural bleed is the most outside. The biggest most outside is a scalp hematoma where you fall and you see somebody with a big, you know, blood clot under their skin. Then you have one under the skull, between the skull and the dura, that's called epidural. The next layer is the dura. So below the dura is subdural. And then within the brain, we have really two kinds of bleeds, intracranial hemorrhage or a blood clot in the brain and subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a bleeding outside the brain, around the brain. And that's really it. So it just depends on where the blood is and whether it's fully formed clot or whether it's more diffuse like a subarachnoid. And there are different causes of each of these things and different treatments, obviously, depending on how symptomatic or how dangerous that they are. And I know that you guys use imaging to try to tell where the bleed is and what you should do. So we have a sort of a complicated slide looking at different imaging of different types of bleed that we'll put up very briefly. You guys can take a screenshot if you like, but I think this is how you know where and how you have to intervene. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, each of these, these are signature, um, there's pattern recognition of where the blood is really leads us to come up with a series of 
potential reasons why they occur. I mean, subdurals and epidurals are mostly traumatic. Subarachnoid can be traumatic as well, but can be from aneurysms or AVMs. And intracerebral bleeds are most commonly from hypertension or other risk factors. You're on anticoagulants and you hit your head. Intraventricular hemorrhage, which is the second one from the left, is those can be a variety of things. They can be from aneurysms. They can be from trauma. They can be from uh, just the conventional hypertensive bleeds that can break through into your into your ventricles, which are the big fluid space. And then subarachnoid is most commonly aneurysms, obviously. So uh, once we see these, we we go to the next imaging modality that, to determine whether it certainly needs additional treatment. If it's a subdural bleed and there's trauma, then trauma is the preceding event, and we don't do much else. Then it's the decision whether the patient needs surgery or not. Whereas the subarachnoid hemorrhage, you can't see the aneurysm on a CAT scan. So more often than not, if someone has a spontaneous bleed that's subarachnoid, we get a CAT scan with, with contrast or an MRA, which is to look at the blood vessels to see if we can see an aneurysm, which are very, very dangerous if they bleed. And 50% of people who bleed from an aneurysm die. So the goal, if you've survived your first subarachnoid, is to prevent the second from happening. And so that leads to a series of uh, workups. You know, sometimes tumors, and I'll turn over to John, can cause intracerebral hemorrhage. That's where, you know, John gets involved very often with these kinds of problems. Can we, um, John, I definitely, we're going to talk to you about brain tumors for sure. Um, but not, we haven't really talked about how you get at this stuff, right? Can you talk a little bit? Because, you know, people are having brain surgery and they, they were fine. So how do you get at the brain? Well, <clears throat> you have to take the skull off and uh, people think uh, that's challenging, but the, the fundamental carpentry that we use uh, around the house, we actually apply to uh, basic brain surgery, meaning that we take drills and, and uh, serrated saw-like instruments uh, that allow us to remove the skull and then carefully we plate the skull um, with uh, titanium mini plates. So you can actually pop off large amounts of the skull and then replace it uh, and, and look cosmetically normal. So in order to get into whether it's a brain tumor or an aneurysm that you're going in for, you know, make an incision through the skin and the scalp, remove the bone, and like David said, go through the lining of the brain called the dura. And then when can you just explain to us what a burr hole is? And I know that there are um, older people maybe who have what's called a chronic subdural hematoma, like where they haven't fallen any time that they remember recently, but they've got changes like what are the changes you're looking for if you're worried about your mom or your dad or your grandma uh and a chronic subdural david well <clears throat> or john whatever go ahead john well thank you david um <laughs> you know the burr holes have a great history also coming you know really going back to the peruvian incas who were used burr holes to uh release evil humors um at T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one 
best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. But, you know, if you're, um, you have an aged um, family member that is having difficulty with gait, um, they're having trouble walking now, or they're having progressive cognitive decline, like David mentioned, if they're on blood thinners, um, and of course, if they're having obvious, more obvious symptoms like seizure activity, which is involuntary movement of an extremity, that's a person we want to get a CAT scan of the head uh, of. And it can show that there are fluid-containing spaces between the lining of the brain called the dura and the native brain. And if that contains blood, we have a decision to make. One, is that a patient that requires uh, opening the skull to drain that blood? and or to, of course, stop uh, anticoagulation. Most commonly, our patients are on anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. So essentially, every day of the week, we're, we're having a decision whether a patient who has atrial fibrillation and is uh, getting older or has a potential fluid-containing space between the dura and the brain, if that patient has a higher risk of being on anticoagulation or not being on anticoagulation because of the stroke risk of atrial fibrillation. One of the more exciting things we're doing is using catheters now for chronic subdural. There's great data on embolizing the dura with little particles. And we've seen just miraculous uh, results and without surgery, open surgery, without open the skull, particularly in patients that aren't symptomatic, just have like, like don't have high ICP or high intracranial pressure, we can go up and, and, and inject these particles into the dura it blocks the little end arteries that contribute to these chronic subdurals forming. And we've seen them essentially melt away over weeks of time. It's not for everyone, but certainly these patients can be infirm or have other comorbidities. They're on anticoagulants. Anytime you operate on someone like that, particularly a craniotomy or even a burr hole, uh, you can avoid disrupting kind of the brain itself and do something, I think, much less invasive. You know, I think that the... Um what we, what Marina and I have learned and shared with our viewers over the past several months is these um, these uh, advances in medicine that take something that used to be very invasive and fraught with difficulty and and made them less invasive and in fact more effective. Um, I think you guys did this uh, with the other two physicians featured on the Netflix documentary, Lennox Hill. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And then we're going to get to brain tumors, I promise. Um, but you know, how'd you guys get the gig and how much makeup did you wear? And did you feel, um, you know, that doctor patient conversation is so sacred, right? It's so sacrosanct. And I don't even have a scribe in my room. I, I like to just be with the patient, be with their family, talk to them. How did you do with a television camera sort of stalking you as you were doing this? And I think what we have is we have a still, a couple of stills from the documentary, and we have a little bit of the promo uh, from the documentary to share just a few seconds. And then we'll ask you guys how you felt about doing that. So human being here, everybody eyes closed, deep breath, a lot of craziness today, obviously. Let's focus on the work. Let's do a job for this guy. Lennox Hill was a sleepy little Upper East Side hospital competing with some of the greatest health institutions in the world. You cannot choose what comes at you here. It's like the front line. We deal with death and dying. I don't even dare to imagine what I'm going to encounter on any given day. I don't have cancer. 
Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. I think there's such a thing as a calling. Yes, that's good. This is the space I'm supposed to be in. There's just so much emotional energy that goes into doing this. The pressure really is intense sometimes. All right, David, you were talking at the end, so let's start with you. You know, when, when John and I first saw that trailer, around this time last year, actually, it was uh, same early in mid-May, I, I think we saw it. We I think we knew he had done something really cool. I I, I wouldn't have, you know, when the, the way this all started was back in 2017, one of my fellows uh, was in the, a similar show in Israel called Ikhilav, which is the predecessor to Lennox Hill. And the, the two movie makers who are, are married, Ruthie and Adi, came to the U.S. with the idea of blowing this up and doing it to a larger audience. And they just were, I was lucky enough to have, have a relationship with someone who was in their old show and knew me and put them in touch with me. And I met them at a Greek restaurant in 2017. And uh, the big picture was um, I knew that in New York city and in the, the the place I've been, that there was no better group of docs than, than us and that there was nothing to hide. It was also uh, I'm filtering the decision of whether to do this or not through the social media age, watching my children, the influences on them and their lives. The, I think the lack of credibility of a lot of the shows that are on the medical shows that are on television and the recognition that what we were doing every day, you know, whether it's John and myself or the rest of our team, or for that matter, Amanda or Mirtha was just most days are pretty freaking cool and incredible. And why not um, let people in? Uh, it's really a, a, an ode to our kids, though. Uh, both John and I are, have young kids. Mine are, my youngest is about the age of John's oldest. But um, in the end, I think it was really meant as a, as a, a kind of a pay into that and, and to, to let them see us before we, what we worked so hard to do. And it came out, in, you know, I think incredibly well, thanks to Ruthie's genius, you know, the art, the art and then the kind of effort that she put into this. And I, I always joke that she... Uh, all TV shows are about medicine. I mean, with the exception of documentaries that were not less human or maybe promotional, were kind of making uh, a fact out of fiction, whereas we were making fiction out of fact, that they were real facts and real reality that, that they were filming. And then she had to compose these characters and these personas of, of certainly John and myself and, and Mirth and Amanda. And, you know, it was really, it's been quite an experience. And um, it's been, uh, you know, there have been some challenges, uh, I've learned a lot about myself, a lot about what it means to be a celebrity, a lot about friendship, a lot about mentorship, a lot about leadership. And John and I are closer now than we've ever been, which uh, doesn't always happen when people get a lot of attention. So um, we're both really blessed to have had this, had this opportunity. John? I mean, this was all David. I mean, <laughs> I, thank God David did this. I mean, I give him all credit. I don't have the personality to have. I'm much more sort of rigid and, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive. And, you know, I was concerned about that, you know, sacrosanct relationship. And particularly in this day and age, as David mentioned, of social media and, and the shade that is thrown upon anybody in, in the public eye, I had some concern about it. And, and and after having met with Ruthie and Adi, who were the uh, production company from Ulari Films, and obviously having a, a brother like David to experience this, uh, the filming with, 
I said, screw it, let's do it. And uh, I agree with David that we were just doing our daily lives. We did not put on makeup, maybe a little foundation for a shiny day. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> we were, once we got used to the, the 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 uh the the cameraman who is Adi Barash who we only we only cared about privacy and safety and when we all agreed that all, everything came back to the patient's privacy and safety and at any point if you know if we ever felt that was going to be compromised we just we stopped and and we never had that moment where we ever compromised uh, privacy or safety and you know we grew very accustomed to just putting on a mic every morning and going about our daily routine. And to the credit of the production company, they never felt, made me feel like, you know, there was a camera, you know, right on my shoulder, whether it was the way they did the angles, whether the way they did the uh, filming, it was just fly on the wall. Let's, you know, continue our day-to-day -day activity. And it, it was beautifully done. Thank you, David. You know, you guys are better men than me because we had the promo for our show up in the OR, like the, you know, the fishbowl where we kind of hang out between uh, between cases. And one of the guys who cleans the rooms, one of the nurses said, hey, this is her show. And he looked at me, he goes, this is you? And I'm like, ooh, what do I look like on a surgical day? <laughs> so good for you. Um, I know COVID changed everything. Um, and I know that you guys not only teach residents and medical students, but you mentor pre-residency uh, people. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so and also like during COVID, so many of us weren't operating, but a lot of the stuff that you guys do are emergencies and, and things had to, you still had to kind of operate. So did you have a surgical pause is what we're calling it? Or do, were you able to work through and, and how was that? And then also let's talk about the residents because I know our residents got um, deployed to perform very needed tasks. And, and some of our residents actually created like a central line service to try and help. So they were very creative and tried to stay busy and helpful during the crisis of COVID, which was, you know, March, April, May. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, we didn't know what to do. I mean, it was chaos. I mean, it was so odd as we were dealing with kind of, we knew the Netflix thing was coming out. And I'll be lying to you if we weren't excited about it. And all of a sudden, there were all these things were being planned, like an opening at the Prince, this theater, and a red carpet, this, and Northwell was going to do this whole thing in Madison Square Garden. And John, who became incredibly optimistic about when it, we just do this with this, we'll be fine by June, or whatever, I'll be fine by the summer. No one knew what the hell was going on. But what, I think we we kind of were told to go home. We shut down our, our service. Uh, everyone was home, and it didn't feel right. John and I both talked. We both decided to give back in a way. I, I I went in, we, I took this mobile app that we've created and went into the ICUs. John developed our whole clini a clinical trial. His group switched over to COVID clinical trials. And so we were really invested in trying to find a role that we can play. We're trained. We, we, we're, even though it's not neurosurgery, you know, it's when you do with 100 patients a day doing the same diagnosis, you can learn pretty quickly. And we became experts. And uh, I think it was really one of the greatest experiences in my medical life, going back and treating COVID patients and working with John and all of our teams in the ICU and the intensivists. I went over to to, uh, to the uh, convention center to Javis to work with the Army docs. It was amazing. I, I, I will look at it as, as a unique, unique time. At the same time, we were convincing Ruthie Nadi to come in and do another episode, and they we actually got it done. So, you know, the, the residents, our residents uh, got involved too. You know, some of our attendings went out in Long Island and got involved in other environments. And I think this is a historic moment. Um, 
we were lucky enough that Netflix was around and again memorialized that too on top of everything else. Then there was Black Lives Matter. It was just a, just incredible like historical moment in New York City that we have a camera with us. I mean, it's just crazy. And um, it really added a whole other layer to the show that uh, we never could have predicted. And for all the negatives of missing out on all the ego stuff and the kind of the gold star stuff that would have come without COVID, we have a lot of North Star stuff that came out of out of this. And it really, I think it really changed me. It, 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 it really did. I, I, it's made us a much better group, made me, I think, a better person. And I'm, again, it was just uh, indescribable what we experienced. You know, we have um, people watching from all over the world. We have uh, people checking in from uh, the the city of Brooklyn, New York. We have people checking in from California. Uh, Kalpa Kumar Ghosh has joined from New Delhi, which, as you know, is in the throes of an incredible uh, COVID crisis and is very grateful about how you are able to explain things uh, in a way that is understandable. So we really appreciate it. Um, I know, uh, John, before we get to brain tumors, um, can you tell us a little bit what you're doing with mentoring, with mentoring kids? Well, I got to tell you, mentoring kids has always been a passion for both David and myself. In fact, we always had a program every summer where we, we had about 10 students each in person um, where they would shadow us actually through the Feinstein Institute of Medical Research. We had a paid internship, very competitive. Um, so we were always used to having a lot of um, pre-medical college students around. And of course, we have medical students through our medical school at uh, Zucker School of Medicine, and uh, we have pre-residency. So we have a whole litany of, of students. When co- And actually, last, a couple of years ago, we started a, a, a fun program called Brain Turns, where David's students would compete against my students in sort of a family feud-like question and answer uh, program. We were all set to have a regular internship in the summer of 2020 when COVID hit. And David and I looked at each other and said, you know, with the eyeballs that were coming with the the Netflix show, why don't we do something creative and and create a virtual internship? And with the help of Randy D'Amico and uh, uh, my uh, pre-medical intern, Josh Katz, with uh, Flora Salmon, who's our our marketing uh, guru, we set up a virtual brain internship. And uh, David can give more color on it, but essentially it was an eight-week virtual curriculum where we had intraoperative um, uh, GoPros on our head where we live. Oh, we've lost John. Just a little bit. We lost your audio. Oh, there he is. Okay. Um, Um, David, can you talk a little bit about this program? Because it's eight weeks, but you guys are actually filming at the same time. No, we, we were done by then. This came we uh, we we used to do the, the in person, but then we knew we got a lot of eyeballs on us uh, starting in June. We and we knew our ki- our kids lost their internships. Knew the whole world was not doing anything, so it was the ideal time to strike. And this was more successful than ever. We had sixteen thousand students that signed up. Um, we had seven thousand students who sent back uh, questionnaires, and of the seven thousand sent back questionnaires from all 50 states, 80 some odd countries, 80% of the students were women. 
At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. And I've, you know, I, I, I'm very, you know, if you look at some of the top medical schools now, 55% are women. And I think it's our duty as, as leaders uh, to recognize this and, and not only create program that's, that's sensitive to that, but recognize the world's changing. And I think brain turns where we're probably a generation ahead, but we're going to do it again. It was eight weeks last summer. We're going to do a four-week uh, brain turnship this summer. Three weeks will be in English, one week in Spanish for we realized that a lot of the brain turn followers from Latin America and Spain. And so um, we, we, this is really our, if you ask me what the greatest thing of Netflix was, I think this is really it. The, the impact that our department and our group can have on, on, on young kids. Uh, this is the manifestation of that. And as, as you know, Netflix is a one-off, you know, that was, that's your action potential. It was sort of really fun and, but you, would there, you, you didn't want that to be the only thing that you were left with. It, it becomes empty. And you don't want to be one of those people, oh, remember when I was in a show? And, our, you know, you, you got to do it. And, and honestly, going to John's point, someone asked me, because with all this Netflix thing, what are you going to do with it? Like, you must have done it for a reason. I was like, actually, I, did, I just thought it would be a good thing to do for us. Well, it's it's an amazing way to reach the public and to ex- – and, and- yeah. To educate that that maybe we're not like Grey's Anatomy in real life, and maybe we're actually doing stuff in the hospital that takes care of patients and uh, pays homage to our our teams. Um, Deirdre Nelson Gruen is asking about criteria for surgery versus medication like steroids. In particular, she's asking about a young adult with limbic encephalitis concerned about surgery. And I'd like to segue that into talking about when you guys decide to operate on epilepsy. So, So limbic encephalitis is usually a non-operative process. Any encephalitis or infection of the brain is usually non-operative unless you have to get a culture or biopsy. And so, depending upon the exact circumstance, we can do a needle biopsy where we use computers to guide a needle into tissue and take small samples of that tissue, whether it's for culture, whether it's to look for pathological evidence of infection, inflammation, autoimmune processes, uh, or of course, what I do, which is brain tumors. Um, and they can often mimic each other. So it takes a lot of imaging and we, we have a whole group of people in our brain tumor center. We meet every Monday morning from eight to 9.30. And we go over every case. Uh, there's usually about 15 or 16 cases per week. And just like the, the person who asked the question, we can range from an infection to uh, inflammation to obviously a brain tumor. And each case is a little bit different. And of course, seizure is a surgical process as well. So if a, a patient has some mesial temporal sclerosis of the temporal lobe, they may be a good candidate for surgery. In many cases, though, we treat seizures with just medication. So we have a slide on epilepsy that we were going to show and it kind of um, that we know that sometimes you guys do uh, surgery for it. But look, just talk a little bit about the symptoms and, and what the child is having. But the, the, there are adults who have nuanced epilepsy. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, the vast majority of epilepsy is not surgical. And uh, the see, epilepsy can be very kind of hard to diagnose sometimes, especially in little babies. You can get what's called gelastic seizures, which are at the level of the hypothalamus where the children appear to be laughing and smiling a lot. And those are that's just one mimic of that. Not to, not to be worried about every time your child laughs when it becomes like all the time, that's, that's abnormal. On the other hand, you know, as you know, there's pediatric epilepsy, which can be more multifocal. Adult epilepsy tends to be in the temporal lobe. Um, and the majority of epilepsies that are surgical are ones that are very focused and focal. That's on an area of the brain that's diagnosed as abnormally, either radiographically or with electrodes that are placed close by to target, to, to sort of make the diagnosis. And then you have to fail medication first. I mean, you don't rush and operate on someone's brain unless it's absolutely necessary because it's primarily resective. But I think the future is actually very bright of um, uh, non-surgical ways to treat people. Here you see a, a vagal nerve stimulator, which is just basically a little catheter that goes around your vagus nerve. But we're, lurking, we're learning much more about the circuitry of the brain. In fact, Elon Musk is an investor in a device that's a, an electrode that basically is delivered through a catheter into the, into the veins of the brain and is left there and can actually act as both a um, localizing source and a treatment source to stimulate over, overstimulate the brain to prevent seizures. We're also looking at MRI-guided ultrasound, focused ultrasound, uh, di different ways of, of treating smaller and smaller and more discrete areas of the brain using electricity or, or using small lesional treatments. So the future is really bright for these functional disorders. We're going to see only smaller incisions and less invasive opportunities for us in the future. And science is incredible. And we're going to see, I think, massive improvements in our ability not only to diagnose epilepsy, but to treat it. You know, it's interesting um, for, for me as well. I've gone to a lot of these lectures on, you know, I went from open surgery to minimally invasive, making small incisions. And, you know, now there's robotic. And uh, I went to a talk on the future of surgery and everything was like Star Trek level. Like, you know, it's going to be a catheter. It's going to be this. And I was like, but I like to touch stuff. And, and I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to be passing catheters. So it's kind of, you know. It, it's not why we went in, but I think the beauty of it is that we can help more people and hopefully more efficiently with less less uh, downtime for the patients and, and hopefully less side effects. Um, we love our viewers. They always ask great questions. And uh, actually, Kalpa Kumar has this interesting question about memory loss, if we can put that up. So uh, you guys see there, he the uh, friend had a fall and now has long-term memory loss. Uh, it came back after a fortnight. So we hear about this, right? It's like amnesia. There have been great movies made about amnestics. And there was one with Goldie Hawn in it, I remember. Um, what was that called? Overboard. Yeah, that was a great movie. <laughs> because you got to marry Kurt Russell, like, frankly. My favorite amnestic movie is Yesterday. Mm. Oh, what, what about yeah. the guy that was writing on himself and was being manipulated? Yeah. Another one. Um, yeah, that was, we're going <laughs> deep into movie land here, but. But like well, the Oscar is Oscar Day, we might as well <laughs> stir it up a little bit. Um, so, so in terms of that memory loss, like does that happen? How often is that is that a thing? And, and is that someone who should have had a CAT scan or what? What goes on there, John? Um, as you know, concussion, for example, is a, a blossoming problem, particularly in in. Uh, adolescent but, girls, for example, in high school, we're seeing a huge number of the, quote, business of concussion. So I just want to start by mentioning that not every head injury is a concussion. And I actually, David and I at, at our, at the 
Penn Head Injury Center obviously uh, are well educated in what is a real concussion, what is not a concussion. And I actually am loath to, to call things a concussion um, because it's very challenging for those uh, kids in high school, for example, to come back to to athletics. So the first thing I want to say is not every bonk of the head uh, leads to concussion. What uh, the gentleman who asked the question is referring to are severe uh, traumatic brain injuries that can obviously lead to something called axonal injury, what we call DAI, diffuse axonal injury, which can disconnect portions of the brain um, that are involved with memory. And that occurs in what we call part of our limbic portions of our brain, the hippocampus in particular, are these long white fibers, and they can be stretched and turned such that there are memory issues in those patients. Now, fortunately, the brain does heal, particularly in the young and the youthful. We do see um, about a millimeter a day of, uh, you know, central nervous and peripheral nervous system repair. So just because there is some memory loss doesn't mean it's not going to improve over time, but there can be significant uh, issues with uh, permanent deficits with severe traumatic brain injury. So um, let's talk a bit about brain tumors. So the majority or two thirds are benign, but one third can be malignant. They can be accessible through, as you said, removing a bit of the skull uh, if they're out at the periphery or the outer portion of the brain. But um, John and David and I work in places that are a little bit less accessible. And so, and we know that uh, the other thing people must remember is that if you've had a cancer somewhere else, breast cancer, prostate cancer, there is a, a chance of a metastasis of that tumor to the brain. But let's, in the few minutes we have left, uh, maybe John, I'm gonna ask you about pituitary tumors and how you approach them. And then David, let's talk a little bit about vestibular schwannomas or acoustic tumors. So John, let's talk about pituitary tumors. Well, the pituitary gland is a fascinating gland. It's kind of right where my fingers meet at the back of the nose. And it's like they taught you in elementary school. Uh, if you took a pencil and shoved it up your nose, you'd hit your brain. Uh, but right before your brain, you'd hit a little gland called the pituitary gland, which hangs from the undersurface of the brain like a clapper on the inside of a bell. It should be about the size of a dime in the majority of us, and it's wildly important. It is, releases all the hormones that tell all the major glands of the body to uh, produce uh, other hormones. So it's wildly, quote, overactive even in its normal function. The, the, the problem with that is it has a... Uh, uh, propensity to make something called adenomas, which are benign growths. And they can grow, like you just showed on the last slide, to a point where they can press on the eye nerves. And if they press on the eye nerves, patients can lose vision in the, what we call the peripheral fields of the side of their vision. And that becomes a surgical urgency. You can see in that slide, a patient has a very large pituitary tumor. And frankly, I have many patients who are very small pituitary tumors. And, uh, you know, I, I see them once a year on surveillance scans, and then I send them back to Boca and say, come back, Edith, in a year, and uh, I'll get your pituitary study a year from now. So, again, pituitary tumors and meningiomas are benign growths for the most part. Uh, they're the most common growths in the human brain that are benign. Many of them are non-surgical. We are fortunate enough now to do all of our surgery endoscopically through the nostrils. We used to cut under the lip and break the uh, the lining of the 
uh, nose. Um, we don't do that anymore. We take a pencil-sized endoscope, stick it up nose, suck out the pituitary tumor, and the patients do very well from this approach. David? Let's go to the lateral skull base, David. That was the anterior skull base. Let's go to lateral real quick. I mean, before, I know I just want to make sure we thank you guys. Uh, you guys really are uh, doing a wonderful job. Uh, we didn't thank you at the beginning. I figured thank you at the end. But you're really representative of the future of healthcare, women leaders, uh, women of color, um, people who are really doing outstanding jobs and, and being creative about education. And I really, we both appreciate this opportunity you know, Sujan and I have operated together on these lateral skull-based tumors, uh, which are basically usually benign. The acoustic tumor, the vestibular schwannoma, is a benign tumor of one of the nerves that's, that goes into your ear that governs balance, actually. But majority of them are true. The radiation are followed now. We're not operating nearly as many as we used to because gamma knife in particular is so terrific. But if they're too large or people have other reasons not to get radiation, then we can treat these uh, through three different approaches, and we usually do them with our uh, ear, nose, and throat colleagues, such as Sujana, who's really a terrific uh, skull-based surgeon to get access to these things through these small carters. But rest assured, um, these are benign. They can be, when diagnosed early, often with, often with tinnitus or hearing loss, they can tr be treated without, without open surgery, and that would be our protocol. But once again, um, this is great. Uh, these, these mediums are here because of COVID. We're, this is the best pandemic ever for these kinds of things. And to see the two of you uh, spearheading this and leading the way is really, it's really an honor to be on your show. John? Thanks so much. I couldn't agree more. And obviously um, to have partners like you obviously in the operating room, but more importantly in the, in the C-suite, um, as you uh, and Marina take leadership roles in your own individual societies and in our hospitals, it just means we're going to have a, a leadership that it represents our community and, and that just leads to better outcomes and uh, like David said, thank you for the honor of being here and uh, you're not just friends, you're colleagues, leaders, uh, just terrific, thank you. Thank you both so much, that's, that's really kind. You actually made Marina and, and me speechless, which is um, impossible. No, actually not, I was just waiting because I knew you were gonna talk. So we're at the end of our show. So we wanna thank you guys so much for joining us again. Uh, and if you haven't watched it, it's called Lennox Hill. And it's, it's a great show and has four wonderful uh, doctors in it. And um, definitely, definitely watch it. Just great. So thank you guys both for being on. Dr. David Langer, Dr. John Bookvar from the Department of Neurosurgery at Lennox Hill Hospital and Northwell Health. Um, thank you to our sponsor, ENT and Allergy Associates, uh, with 40 offices uh, in New York and New Jersey uh, for your ENT and allergy care. Really thanks to our production team who um, really helps us look really good every week. Uh, Rose Horowitz, Vandana Menon, Julia Weeks, Kaval Ramanathan, uh, our designer, Shristi Hebar, and our voiceover by uh, the dulcet tones of Nicole Lewis. Uh, Marina, Shri, and I are the executive producers of this show. And next week, Marina. Next week, we have a great show. We're gonna be talking about trauma surgery, anesthesiology, and advocacy. And uh, Dr. Au is actually a Georgia State representative. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Yurk and Dr. Au, and we'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.
At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com.